five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. I'm reading from the book of uh, Hebrews, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, Here I am, the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shattered their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to make like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, thank you for these words. Let us live by them. Let us love them. I hope you all had a a great Christmas and a a good week. We get to start the new year by taking the Lord's Supper today, communion. And as we prepare for the Lord's meal uh, today, we have a few passages to to look at. Today is a, a topical message. We'll be bouncing around a little bit. We'll take a look at some biblical images, theological images, take a look at some some narrative today. I do want to be clear up front. Some of what we get in today um, will be unpleasant. Uh, parts of this sermon contain violent, poetic imagery and disturbing narratives that we'll get into. But I want you to know, this, this world is desperately broken by sin. It's, it's dark, a lot of darkness. It's in need of repair and redemption. But it's in this context of the sinful world and the dramatic complexities of, of evil. Uh, in that context, today is about lifting up Jesus. He is the light in our darkness. And so in community today, uh, we get to come together and remember what Jesus has done for us. We get to remember that he is the light of the world. Part of communion serves as, uh, as, as, as something that, that we can 
do. It's, it's something for us for, for community formation. You see, we're a bunch of different people here, different backgrounds, walks of life. Our theology isn't all the same across the room here. Some of our theologies are closer to some than others. But here's the thing. We come together and we align ourselves with, with Jesus. And so today, as we move towards the meal of bread and cup, my prayer and goal is that we hear Jesus speak over us today. That we hear Jesus point us in a new direction for today, this week, this whole entire year. And so uh, let's pray and then we'll get started with today's message. Heavenly Father, God, uh, thank you for this brand new year. We thank you for the year that we've, we've, uh, we've just gone through, Lord. We, we remember the highs and the lows, God. Today's a brand new day, brand new year. And we just ask that as we come together uh, to study your word in community, that you would, re- you would renew our imaginations. Holy Spirit, uh, take our minds and transform them, Lord. Stretch us with new ways of, of thinking. Today, God, we just ask that you would help us to believe and to just know so strongly in our hearts just how victorious you are and how powerful you are. I ask that you would strengthen our faith today. In your name, we pray. Amen. So to get things started this morning... To get ourselves established, to get things rolling, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter sixty-three. Isaiah chapter sixty-three. We're gonna we're gonna take a look at verses one to nine today. This is a, a very dramatic portrayal happening here uh, in in the scripture. God is intervening in the life of the world, and this poetic uh, imagery comes across. Very violently, it's, it's violent imagery of, of God showing up like a warrior, and he's covered in the blood of his enemies. He has blood-spattered garments on. Isaiah chapter 63, it's not VeggieTales friendly, okay? And so you need to uh, imagine a watchtower guard of some sorts. And he sees this warrior approaching. It's, it's God as a warrior approaching. And the guard calls out, who is coming from Edom, from Basra? Okay, Edom is a bully nation to God's people. And Edom kind of stands as like a, a, a representative of the nations. Basra is a city uh, in Edom. So, so who's coming from the nations? Who, who is this? With his garments stained crimson, who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? The warrior, again, it's God, the warrior uh, responds, it is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. The guard calls out again, why are your garments red? Why are your garments red? Like, like those of one treading the wine press. All right, so what is a wine press? They would carve like a rectangular cavity into the ground, or sometimes they would build this, 
and they would fill up this cavity with, with the ripe grapes, and then they would get in there, hopefully with clean feet, and they would stomp, they would tread those, those grapes, all right? And then it, it, the way that it's designed, the juice would flow out, you'd collect the juice to then, you know, uh, turn into wine, and the process continues, all right? God is trampling on his opponents like an ancient winemaker tramples on grapes. This is symbolic for judgment, okay? So this is symbolism for judgment. And again, it comes across in a very violent way. God is, is covered in the blood of his, of his enemies. And then verses uh, 3 to 6, God goes on to tell the guard that he alone is the one who intervened in this fallen world. Okay? God alone is the one who's, who's trampling these, these grapes. And you might recall Julia Ward Howe's hymn, Battle Hymn of the Republic. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Now you know where that comes from. The dramatic imagery here is to get the point across. God will trample over evil. Okay, in ancient Hebrew... They didn't have like all caps or bold letters or use a bunch of different colors to get the point across. You use violent imagery like this, dramatic imagery to get the point across. God will trample over evil. God intervenes. He is the conqueror. He is victorious. You all got that? You guys are grabbing hold of that today. God will trample over evil. Then in contrast to this symbolism of, of judgment. The Hebrew poetry switches gears and it turns into a worship song. And, and Isaiah 63 remembers God's work of grace and compassion. Okay, again, it's like a worship song. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord. The deeds for which he, he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. The poetry is pointing to God's saving work in history, God's redemptive acts in history. And then in his love and his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Okay, what, what is happening here in this poetry? What, what is this poetry trying to express theologically? What really just grabs my attention is you have the warrior God who's covered in blood. Who takes on evil and he, he wins. He alone wins. This is the same God who loves. This is the same God who has so much mercy and, and, and he, he has redemption and, and he carries his people. It's the same God. And we have to wrestle with these, these images here. And I just imagine, okay, like if we're in the camp and God is our father, God is our dad, our heavenly dad. Well, dad's a warrior and dad goes out and he, he fights he faces evil. He makes things right. He is mighty to save. And you know what? Dad buys back his kids. And that's what redemption means. To buy back. 
So this is this poetry. It's it's just absolutely good news for you know the the humble people of Israel. You know they're they're recovering from Babylon exile. You know these these humble faithful the the, the remnant. They they're just longing for God's justice and mercy to flow. They're so hungry for God's redemptive kingdom to show up. And so they, they hear this good news of, okay, here is a God who's going to make things right. He's going to be a God of redemption. And the Old Testament is filled with stories of redemption. Sometimes it's God himself who shows up. Sometimes it's others acting on God's behalf, others who are after God's heart. They're, they're the agents of redemption showing up to save. The ultimate act of redemption, however, it comes when Jesus arrives. It's through God's son, Jesus. And we just celebrated Jesus' birth last week, Christmas, right? And so now uh, we spent some time in Isaiah chapter 63. We got some of these images. We talked about redemption a little bit. We're going to switch gears. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. Now we're going to take a look at a narrative. Again, it has some disturbing qualities to it. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 13. We're going to take a look at the world that Jesus was born into, that toddler Jesus lived in. When they have gone, who's they? That's the wise men. This is a post-wise guy story. The magi, the, the wise men, they have... they. They're gone, they've left. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Who's Herod? This is Herod the Great. He's a client king of Rome. He's not a real king. Okay, but we we call him King Herod. He, he from from some perspectives he was a good leader. From some perspectives he was a great builder, a great administrator. But really, no, yeah, he he wasn't a great guy. Um, he's cruel. He's paranoid, and as we see in the text, he wants to kill baby Jesus, toddler Jesus. And so Joseph gets up. He takes Jesus and Mary during the night and they leave for Egypt. And so I want you to, to pick up the, the sense of urgency here that under the cover of, of darkness, Joseph is taking his family, Mary and toddler Jesus, and they're escaping in the night. They have to go. They're on the run. They're refugees. The nativity family, they are refugees running for their lives. And we do know that there, there are Jewish colonies in Egypt during this time. We don't know where they went to. Perhaps they went to Alexandria in Egypt. And so Joseph stayed uh, in Egypt until uh, the death of, of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew, he's giving a nod to the prophet Hosea here. Now, just very quickly, this is Matthew's way of saying, hey, Jesus is a better Moses who's going to rescue the people. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, 
He was furious. He was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. That's Jesus' age bracket. Okay? In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod's power is threatened here by this little toddler named Jesus. He has rage. He has rage. This is first century, very dangerous world type of rage. He is furious. He is paranoid. And ultimately, it leads to an order to kill innocent children. Hmm. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When Jeremiah wrote those words, mothers were lamenting over their sons lost in exile. Surrounding the story of, of Christmas in, the, in Matthew's gospel account are sad stories of, of losing children, lives lost. In our story uh, that we're looking at today, we need to keep in mind living under Roman oppression, living in a place where your local leader wants to kill your son. It's not supposed to be like this. And, and when we say, oh, there's a lot of darkness in this world, that's, that's not just a thing we say. No, like, there's a lot of darkness in this world. And sure, it's not Egyptian slavery. It's not Babylon exile. But it's like, you know, the, the, the meaning of, of exile, it still kind of applies here to, to the Jews of, of Palestine in the first century. The need still remains. Evil needs to be trampled. And people, places, and things need to be redeemed. People are still craving God's redemptive kingdom. And the story goes on. After Herod died, so thank you, Lord, he's gone. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Herod the Great dies. Rome steps in and they split up his quote-unquote empire. And it's dispersed among Herod's sons. Herod Archelaus is a son. Archelaus gets to rule in the region of Judea. And he is oppressive. He's not a cool cat. In fact, historically we know Archelaus is responsible for a massacre of 3,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph is like, ah, I don't like this guy. Now, Archelaus has a brother named Antipas. Antipas is in charge of Galilee. 
And so having, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called Nazarene. So this is why Jesus grows up in the, the obscure town of Nazareth and not Bethlehem. Now, we're reminded today, we were reminded last week as we study the Christmas story, we're reminded again today, the Christmas story is a very like raw and gritty story, you know, laying your baby in a feeding trough and all that. But the, the episodes around the Christmas story, just filled with tragic and or challenging drama. It's innocent deaths and tyranny, oppression, refuge, dangerous places to live, dangerous leaders. This is the stuff that is surrounding Jesus' birth in early years. The world of Isaiah was filled with struggle. The Hebrew poetry of Isaiah chapter 63, it, it, it shapes our imaginations, though, of a God who shows up to intervene and, and to bring victory. And this prophetic poetry was there to inspire the, the hope in the midst of struggle that God will judge, that God will bring about redemption. But then as we see in Matthew chapter 2, in the context of Jesus' birth, the world is still... Filled with so much struggle. It's cruel. It's dangerous. It's unfair. And the world that Jesus was born into. Yes, it was dark. So much twistedness. So much evil. And then we come to our world today. And we're like, wow. It's the same thing. There's wars. Genocides. Bombings. And I have to tell you, when I was initially taking notes for this sermon today, it was actually back on December 13th. And that was the day before the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook school shooting. And so in context, as I'm like working on the sermon material, I start to then think about Sandy Hook 10 years ago. As you recall, 28 deaths Two injured in that Connecticut school shooting. Now, in my world, I have a 16-year-old niece who's learning how to drive. Okay, the kid, some of the kids who, got, who were killed in Sandy Hook, they were six, seven years old. They should be learning how to drive today. They, they are the same age as my niece. They should be learning how to drive. And it broke my heart to think about these school shootings and it's so sad, like, we do not have to look far for others, because in May of last year, Uvalde, Texas, 22 deaths, 18 injured. Santa Fe High School in 2018, 10 deaths, 13 wounded. Parkland, Florida, Stoneman Douglas High School, 2018, February 2018, 17 dead, 17 wounded. It's like the list goes on and on. And then, you know, that's just like school shootings. There's other, other shootings, other killings, bombings. You know, it's like, goodness. My point here today is to simply just to grieve and lament 
and cry out to God. Innocent deaths are just still happening all the time. Our kids are still getting destroyed. This world is unfair. It's cruel. It's dangerous. Jesus' world was filled with so much sin and death. So so is our world today. But nevertheless, this is the world that Jesus is mighty to save. Hebrews chapter 2 teaches, in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory, God the Father sent his son Jesus to be the pioneer of salvation. What does that mean? Jesus came here and he trailblazed his way through this upside down, violent, dark world. The devil was thinking that he had complete control over death. Yeah, well, Jesus ruined that. You see, Jesus went to the cross on his own terms. He went to the cross willingly. He took on death. He took it within himself. And Jesus was slain. Jesus paid the price with his life. His body, his blood. He paid the price and therefore he is the one who is free. To buy back all who are enslaved to the devil. Enslaved to fear. Enslaved to sin and death. And as we reflect upon the wages of sin. And how it's death. And all of this evil and sin and darkness. We are the grapes that deserve to be trampled. We are the grapes that deserve to be trampled. But it's with so much love. And so much mercy. So much grace. Jesus says, no, no, let me be the trampled one. Let me be the one inside the wine press so that they can go free. Now, Jesus doesn't bend his way out of being the judge that he needs to be. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't bend himself out of being the Jesus that he needs to be. Jesus lived the life that we could not. Jesus died in our place. He is the perfect mediator between God and humanity because Jesus is both. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest that we so desperately need. And in him, we find forgiveness. We find our sins are washed away. We find redemption restoration, repair, good and beautiful things can come about in our lives. We can live in freedom because of what Jesus has done for us. Religion says, be afraid of the wine press. Be good or you will be trampled by God. But hear this this morning. The gospel says it is because of what Jesus has done. You're accepted. And you are now free to serve God and others. In Jesus Christ, you can start living in God's redemptive kingdom today. Now let me take you to Revelation chapter 19 real quick. Jesus is revealing images to John. John writes them down. Lots of symbolism and images in Revelation. As a side note, someday I really do hope to preach through Revelation just want to put that advertisement out there. It might be in a couple years. 
But it is on my, it's in my head and heart to preach through Revelation. I just wanted to let you know that publicly. For us today, though, in Revelation 19, we won't get into all of the details except one here. There is an image of Jesus as a warrior. He's dressed in a robe, and it's dipped in blood. But what's really important here about this, this imagery in Revelation 19 is that the battle hasn't happened yet. The warrior Jesus arrives and he's already covered in blood. Whose blood is this, Jesus? What, what were you up to? Whose, whose blood is this? Well, Revelation chapter 5 informs us it's Jesus' own blood. Revelation 5, Jesus is the lamb who was slain. And so this is an Old Testament image applied to to Jesus now. Isaiah 63 applied to Jesus. God will conquer evil, but it's through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is like the pinch of, of the gospel. And it's, it's something that we need to continue to contemplate. Jesus is victorious through sacrificial death. Jesus brings victory as the slain lamb. And so, yes, I want to lift up Jesus today, and I don't want you to miss how Jesus has intervened in the life of the world, how Jesus brings victory. It is through the cross that he takes on death and he wins. He tramples death with death. I don't want you to miss how Jesus brings victory. Don't miss that he he has brought victory. Don't miss how he brought it. It's through self-sacrificial love and giving his life away. And so while there's still a lot of darkness and heartache and innocent deaths and tyranny and oppression and refugees and global migration around the world, if you ever take a look at that, people are on the move all over the globe. This world is still a dangerous place to live. But I want you to know this truth, okay? I, I, I want you all to know this, like, just so hardcore in your head and heart. The world is different because of Jesus and his gospel. The gospel does free us. And now we get to imitate Jesus' self-sacrificial love. We get to model his mercy, his compassion, his kindness. We can renounce the, the spirit of Herod that pops up in the news or in our hearts. <clears throat> we can rebuke the temptation to put others or ourselves in the wine press. And so in humility, we proclaim the victory that Jesus brings, that Jesus brought that he'll continue to bring. We preach redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has so much grace and new life. And he gives it away freely. That's what, you know, gospel means good news or a good announcement. It's not advice, as Tim Keller reminds us. The gospel isn't advice, it's news, it's an announcement. This is what Jesus has done for you.
And so as we move towards taking the Lord's Supper together, we get to remember Jesus. We get to participate in the power of Jesus' life. The bread and the cup, they celebrate this new covenant that Jesus started. The bread and the cup, they're, they're symbols of our life and freedom in Christ. The power that brought Jesus back from the grave is the same power that repairs us, that redeems us. The victorious power of God, it can trample our sin. The victorious power of God, it can transform us into being people of truth, beauty, and goodness. We can be people who live in God's redemptive kingdom. The gospel has changed my life. And while I wish more changes and more transformation could, could happen in society and, you know, we could bend more things towards the kingdom and shalom and all of that. In my own heart, in my own life, Jesus has moved mountains. Jesus has brought so much transformation in my own life. And it's because of him. It's his work. He is the God of redemption. And so here at Plymouth Meeting Church, the meal that we, we do, it looks different just about every time we do it. Every time we partake in communion, uh, we do it in a different style or mode. And personally, I, I like it that way because it keeps the meal fresh. It avoids just going through the motions. So whether it's served in the pews or by intinction, that's the fancy word for when we dip it, or it's self-serve style like what we'll do today, the key is to remember Jesus and his sacrificial death, his love, his obedience. He went to the cross. He gave his life so that we could have life. So we remember Jesus this morning and the new life that we receive from him. Luke twenty two nineteen. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And so the meal we're about to partake, the invitation is to remember Jesus. He is the sacrificial lamb. He's also the lion, the warrior who fights for us. He is the victorious one. And so I invite you, we come to Christ's table. We don't deserve to be here, but it's his grace and he has a spot for every single one of you. We lay down our lives. We submit, we surrender. The old ways of struggle, the old ways of fear and fighting being selfish, we say those ways are over. In this meal, we symbolically pass through death, just like Jesus. And we eat and we drink. We remember in Jesus, we have new life, powerful, victorious life. Let's pray.